Listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Our guest today has had numerous health issues, including E. coli, cancer, depression from losing a child, domestic abuse, and she suffers from a genetic disorder of the connective tissue that causes all of her joints to dislocate. It's called Marfan syndrome, named after the French doctor who first described the condition in 1896. And joining us to talk about the influence of cannabis in her life is Shannon McCluskey of Washington State. Shannon, great of you to do this on a beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest. Thank you for having me. Tell us about Marfan syndrome and what that has been like for you. Uh, Marfan syndrome has been very difficult. As a child, I was misdiagnosed for years. And as a child, uh, I was very clumsy. I fell down quite a bit. And as a kind of a fix my parents thought well we'll put her in uh, ballet and so that really didn't help as a matter of fact it it was probably one of the worst things they could have done and so it just got worse plus I look like a gawky oh it was awful plus Marfan folks are very tall and thin in stature and uh, kind of think Ichabod Crane no offense to any other fellow Marfs out there but I'm sure that they would relate to that description and it's very painful in the respect that um, you don't really understand what's going on. You're, you, you're very loose-jointed. And as a teenager, it can be frustrating because, you know, especially now, I'm sure, doctors at the time thought that we were I was drug-seeking or uh, whatnot. And as a result, I didn't quite get the care that I probably needed. And that, in turn, led to the E. coli infection. And um, it didn't help that with Marfan's, I present differently than most people. I don't get fevers like the average person. So my body, it's like an almost like an autoimmune disorder where your body doesn't like to fight whatever's attacking it. Uh, It affects your heart as well and your eyes. Um, One of the number one causes of death with Marfan patients is an aortic dissection. Considering that it's a connective tissue, that's in everything, including what holds your arteries together. And um, it just falls apart. Has the, I was, has, has the syndrome gotten worse over the years? Yes, mine has. Mine has. Uh, as, as I got older, um, I started noticing more issues. With Marfan patients, it's different with every patient. There's no cure. Some people are... Like me, the joints are the number one problem. And a lot of people, it's their heart is the number one problem or their eyes. Uh, you lose your vision a lot with Marfan's because the lens will slip off of your eye. But I found it where I dislocated my knee when I we had friends over for dinner and I was, I was in my 20s. And I walked past the sofa of my 
parents' sofa to go get something out of the kitchen, and I barely bumped it, and my knee dislocated, and it stayed out. So my father was a state trooper, and and I was living at my parents' home at the time, and they took me to the emergency room, called an ambulance, and did all that. And at the emergency room, they were just so shocked at the the severity of my dislocation. Mind you, I didn't wasn't diagnosed with Marfan's at the time, but they thought that I had been in a car accident and that we were trying to lie because it was so severe. They couldn't imagine that that would happen by bumping it. It did major damage, had to have surgery. That was the first dislocation that I had, and it it went downhill from there. When were you officially diagnosed with Marfan? I was officially diagnosed in Texas in 2008. 2008, nine years ago, and it took them that long to diagnose it. Yes, And, and the craziest part of that is when I was born, it was a checklist of Marfan symptoms. Like, so I was born with a deformity of the chest, which I was horrified to find out about at 18. But my chest was caved in, Mm -hmm. in the center. It was like where your heart is. It's just like you just pushed it in and it didn't pop back out. Uh, I had a lazy eye growing up as a child. I had to wear patches and those thick Coke bottle glasses. And Mm -hmm. I had really, really badly bucked teeth and a very high arch narrow palate in my mouth. Oh, sweetie. Uh, God, you just had it all going on. Oh, girl, I had it all. And and, and that wasn't bad enough. My mother made me wear Laura Ingle braids. And I, it was just, it was, I was the ugliest child growing up. And I joke about it now. No, truly it was, it was really awful. But it was all, you know, we didn't know. Those were all signs pointing to the Marfans. And when you go down the list, now it's like, oh, check, check. And literally, I had every single one from birth. So there's nothing the medical community can do for you? No, no, nothing. That's one of the hardest things with Marfan patients. I mean, they can fix you symptomatically as you go along. So like, I have echocardiograms of my heart on a regular basis. And if my aorta gets to a certain size, they're going to replace it. If they, I have a murmur because of this, they check that on the regular basis. And if that starts to have problems, then they fix it. I'm very lucky now that I live where I live and I have the doctors that support me. Years ago, I mean, I, I ruined my life with opiates. Ruined my life with opiates. And they just gave them to me like candy. I remember being a senior in high school and my doctor was giving me 30 Percocet every two days. Wow. Regularly. You were taking 15 a day? Easy. Oh, easy. Very easy. And they didn't know what was going on. I think she just wanted to shut me up. I don't know. My sister was her nurse. Shannon, what was your parents' reaction to you being on such strong medication? They were not happy about it. My father, being a law enforcement, and they saw. They saw where I was going. And I don't care who the person is. When you have a chronic illness like that and you are on those opiates for long term, anyone is going to have addiction and depression. It feeds off of each other because Mm -hmm. you're down. You can't get up. And what do you do? I'll take some more pills because I'll go to sleep and then I won't realize what's going on you wake up you're still in your same hell 
right? Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take some more pills. And at this time, marijuana wasn't legal. I mean, I, I should, I want to touch on in 93, before marijuana was legal in this state, uh, I did see a doctor. And it was it, looking back, I kind of giggle about it now because I was so scared at the time and young. And it wasn't legal being a police officer's child. I did smoke marijuana as a teenager and uh, unawares of the medical benefits. And I'd gone to the kidney doctor because my kidneys were so bad. And I went to the kidney doctor and, and he asked me in one of after, you know, I gave my urine and all that. He goes, hey, have you ever tried cannabis? And I got scared. I was like, oh, no, they found it in my urine. Oh, no, I'm going to lie. I'm going to say, oh, you know, I, I wasn't for me. I tried it a few times with some friends, but I really didn't like the way it made me feel. And then he came at me with, oh, that's too bad. I was going to suggest it for pain. And I was like, dang it. Dang <laughs> let it. Me, let me retract what I just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, of course, being young, I was not, not I did not know how to backpedal out of that situation. So uh, I just kind of walked out. Now, my it's, that's the funny thing, too, is my father, despite his occupation, he was always in favor of my cannabinoid use or my cannabis use, over my opiate use. I can remember my father having shouting matches with my physicians, saying she's going to get addicted. I can't, we got to stop this. And the doctors are like, well, we'll deal with that when she's well. But it doesn't sound like with this illness that you get well. No, no. And as a result, like, so, you know, doctors before being diagnosed, right, they, as Marfan's, they wanted to fix my joints with surgery. So I, my knees are just shot, right? Looking at them, covered in scars. Well, in one of my surgeries when I lived in Manhattan, I got a MRSA infection in my left joint when I was 23 years old. And I almost lost my leg. I mean, it, it, I came so close. I was on vancomycin for a year IV. It's one of the worst antibiotics you can be on. I got down, I'm 5'11", I weighed 112 pounds. Uh, it was it was so bad, and because my immune system from the Marfans is bad, they suspect that I just, the, the MRSA took over. And um, I had to fly home and live with my parents. I had a hospice nurse come to our house. It, it, was, it was brutal. So as a result of that, now I get MRSA all the time. I'm not catchy. Nobody's ever caught in it from me, thank goodness. Knock on some wood, because that is very dangerous. But I caught mine in the hospital. Can you, and Shannon, sorry to interrupt. Can you explain to listeners what that is? Yes, MRSA infection is um, a staph-resistant staph infection. We all have it on our skin, and you can just people have fallen down playing basketball, skin their knee. Boom, they have a MRSA infection. Uh, so it, it is fairly easy to catch, but it, in the same token, it's very difficult to catch. And it's a, a antibiotic-resistant MRSA staph. And that's what the R in the MRSA stands for, is resistance. But I don't know what the other technical ones are. But technically, when it breaks down, that's what it means. And it's like a superbug. It's like a superbug. And... I got so lucky. I really did. I got so lucky because there are so many people that are not nearly as fortunate as I. Shannon, but all- 
Yeah, sorry, Shannon, I just want to uh, go back to the early 90s because you experienced uh, E. coli and you almost yeah. died from E. coli in the outbreak in Washington State. Was that yeah. the jack-in-the-box issue? Yes, it was. That was the jack-in-the-box issue that uh, really kind of set off my Marfan allergic or uh, immuno immunization issues my my health my body not fighting the infection yeah just for the uh, sake of our listeners uh, i uh, did some research on that and more than 700 people were infected in washington california idaho and nevada and it was as a result of the hamburger and jack in the box blamed its supplier but washington law requires that hamburger meat be cooked at 155 degrees fahrenheit or 68 degrees celsius in order to kill the e coli but jack yeah. in the box adhered to federal standard which is 140 degrees or 60 degrees celsius hence the e coli outbreak mhm and you nearly yes. you nearly died from that i nearly died that was when the Percocet started. Remember me saying my doctor was giving me Percocet. So mm -hmm. I was complaining of kidney pain, kidney pain, kidney pain. I was in that woman's office constantly, and they, that's part of the other problem. I don't present normally. So she couldn't find anything. So she just started throwing pills at me to shut me up, you know. And she's, you know, they couldn't find anything, couldn't find anything. And it was a Saturday. I was, um, 18 years old staying. I'd stayed home that Saturday night and watched Saturday night live with my dad. I sat up on the sofa. I felt a pop in my side by the next morning. I was almost dead, you know, and my parents had taken me to the ER multiple times and they kept taking me home for the spine pain saying, we can't find anything. We can't find anything. Well, an abscess had formed in my kidney. And when I sat up, it had the E. coli. And when I sat up, it had ruptured, I guess. And by the next day, it was in my blood system. So my parents, of course, the next morning were reluctant to take me back to the ER because they always sent me home, you know. I had to crawl to the phone on my hands and knees. I was throwing up in a garbage bag because I was vomiting from the pain. I just bile. And I could not, I could not maintain and they took me to the to the doctor and they did all these blood work and everything and they thought that I had sickle cell anemia at first I'm clearly very caucasian I know there's a few people that that can still get it and appear like me and still have you know still be african american so my mother of course is freaking out and another doctor that was not working on my case just thought let's just see just take a chance and see if this could possibly be E. coli. And at the last second, that's what they found. They told my parents if she would have stayed home six more hours, she, she would have died. And even when they started the antibiotics and the dialysis at that time, they told my folks and my friends, we don't think she's going to live. It really comes down to the antibiotics. So I can remember waking up in the hospital and having people which was very sweet but my mother had called friends from high school you know and told them what was going on and a lot of people came to visit me but they were people that I really wasn't that close of friends with so I can remember waking up in the hospital and seeing people I knew there but that I wasn't that close with in my room and stuff but not being well enough to kind of put two and two together but as I was getting well 
each hour passed, I was putting this one together in my head and it scared me. So um, I did. I, I left the hospital early. I had kind of a near-death experience in the hospital and it re- I thought it was the drugs and it freaked me out. So I, I left um, and I did my treatments from home because I felt like they were over-medicating me in the hospital, even at 18. Take us uh, 10 years ahead of that in the early 90s. In the early 2000s, 2004, you had ovarian cancer. I did. I did. I was living in Texas at the time, and my husband at the time worked for the government. Um, And I remember with this specific diagnosis, I had an appointment on Friday, but my OBGYN uh, had to deliver a baby. And... Uh, I was very kind of upset, but I can remember thinking, cause I had a very good rapport with my OBGYN at the time. And I felt that he would have called me and let me know, or had, you know, had me come in, stayed a couple of you know, minutes after to tell me if it was something bad. Right. I truly believe that. So when he canceled, my husband had taken that day off cause I was worried it would be bad news. And so Monday, we had to schedule for Monday, and my husband said, do you want me to go with you? And I was like, no, 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 I'm sure it's nothing. They wouldn't have bumped me off. They would have found room if it was bad news. So at the time, I had my oldest daughter, Isabella, and she was uh, about a little over a year at this time. And um, I had her with me. So I go to the doctor's appointment. I'm thinking that nothing's wrong. I'm having a great morning. And I go in and I sit down and the doctor comes in and Lou's playing around on the floor. And he sits down and he just looks at me and he says, you have cancer. And I just, I mean, I was stunned. And I know that there's no good way to say anything to someone like that. And I was young and I had lost one child to death and I had my Isabella, but I wanted more. I wanted lots of kids. And I said, well, I already knew where they were going to say treatment was. And he said, you know, if you're my daughter or my wife, I would do a complete hysterectomy tomorrow. And I said, well, I'm not your daughter and I'm not your wife. So I'm not doing that. Um, let me go process this. And I can remember calling my husband and just him crying on the other end. And now our marriage is over now. And he, you know, but it still makes me feel bad when I think back to that because he was he had to ride down with a friend and we didn't know they didn't know how far it had spread we didn't know anything like that how did you get rid of how did you get rid of the cancer in 2004 well you know that's the that's the thing I went online and I wanted to have more kids and I've always been that person that will step up and let doctors learn you know I'll let a doc, excuse me, I'll let a doctor do a surgery on me that they've never done because they're going to learn. They got, everybody has to start somewhere, right? So we have, somebody has to take the leap and take a chance on someone. I feel that if you've made it through medical school, okay, and, and you're not a half wit and I can carry on a conversation, I'll probably take a chance on you. <laughs> but I went online. And I found this procedure because at first, when I was first diagnosed, they said um, it was it was in my cervix as well as up in the right ovary. And the margins weren't clear and they needed to do 
go and take everything out. Well, I did a surgery to find out if I needed to do that. And I found that there was a doctor in France that had done this procedure where they take out the entire cervix up to the uterine wall. And as long as it hasn't in, in gone into the uterus, this is very important because a lot of women are having hysterectomies for cervical cancer that are unneeded and losing their opportunity at children. So this, I'm glad we get to t- touch on this. So this procedure is where they take the entire cervix up to the uterine wall. And as long as the, the margins are clear and the cancer cells haven't spread into the uterus and it's only in the cervix, you can do other treatments after you have the surgery that preserve your ovulation ability to have children later on, which is what I did. Uh, I did not do radiation. Uh, I did not do any of those. I, I did not. I removed one ovary and left the other. They told me, they said, Shannon, if you get pregnant again, we will put in a uterine cerclage, different than the common cervical cerclage that a lot of women have for an inc- incomplete cervix. Uh, the uterine cerclage is, is permanent, and you are automatically going to have a cesarean section after that. But you know what? It's better than no babies at all. So uh, what they did is I got pregnant. They didn't think I would, but I did. So that's a miracle in itself. And then once I was three months gestation, they went ahead and went in and did surgery to sew my daughter Eleanor right into my uterus. That also turns you into a high-risk pregnancy, but I didn't care. I wanted more babies. I would have traded anything. I would have done any treatment to preserve my ability to have more babies, and I did. Uh, and it worked. They told me, they said, you know, this cancer is probably going to come back, and I knew the risks when I did it, but if you're a woman Um, you sit down and you talk with your husband and your boyfriend or whatever, your partner, male or female. And, and if you choose to take the path like mine, I mean, I'm still here. So it was the right choice for me. Just be informed. Don't be afraid to Google. Don't be afraid to look things up. Don't be afraid to look outside of your country. Shannon, when when did cannabis come into the picture? Cannabis has always been in the picture. Literally, since I was 17 years old, I've only quit cannabis during my custody issues. That was the only time. Okay, well, when did, when did you consciously start using it medically? Consciously start using it medically, I would say in 2001, when my son passed away. I used it for um, emotional anxiety. Uh, and I, that's when I started realizing, oh my gosh, this works for my pain too. Because mind you, I'd been on opiates for years. I'd never really gone off of the opiates. So I never knew that cannabis could manage my pain, right? When you started the cannabis medically and you were on these opiates, did you manage to get off the opiates? Yes, sir. I have been off of the opiates for over five years. How difficult was that? Or was it difficult for you? It was very difficult for me to get off of the opiates, personally. Uh, I did use a, a temporary treatment of a Suboxone plan to uh, help with the withdrawals. I had been on them so long that the withdrawals were actually triggering physical medical issues elsewhere. It was a vicious circle, and a friend of mine who was a recovering heroin addict, and I thank God for him every single moment of every day, approached me and said, Shannon, let me help you. Let me help you with this. 
and he taught me and showed me and, and told me his story. And I talked to my doctors and they were elated. They said, yes, 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 yes. We can do this. Yes. Let's do this. So, uh, I did a very brief treatment of Suboxone and, um, I'm still off of the opiates. Now, I'm not going to say I have, I don't use the opiates. Um, when I have kidney stones, I had kidney surgeries. Um, when I have heart surgeries, things like that, there are, you know, there are a use for those medications. However, for me personally, that's not an, every day isn't an option. Shannon, how much cannabis do you consume uh, during a day and in what form? I consume cannabis edibly in all of my food that I eat and prepare at home. Uh, that's breakfast, snacks, all of that. I also smoke cannabis as well um, because the effects are different than when I eat it. Uh, I find that the effects from smoking, it helps with my mental and my anxiety much and, and more of my nausea as well. Because I have from chemotherapy that I did do later on with my second round of cancer, uh, chemotherapy leaves me with permanent lifelong nausea 24-7. So um, the cannabis has really helped with that. Now, I always like to show the other side of the coin. I have had cannabinoid toxicity. Uh, and it is not a joke. It is very real. Um, and I didn't think it was, but it, it is, I, I found out when I went to the doctor and they were reluctant to approach me about it because they knew that I was such a staunch advocate for cannabis and they figured that I would be absolutely close minded to the idea, but no, it, it is real. And what happens is your fat cells fill up with cannabinoids and it spills over and you can get sick from it. So for me, I was just doing it entirely too much. You know, I mean, I was eating at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, I was dabbing as well as smoking. And I mean, I don't know about those people that get out of their mind blazed. That's never happened with me. I'm, I'm stoned right now. And I don't think that anyone that would know, I don't think anyone would know unless I told them. So yeah, I consume, I, I smoke probably about an eighth a day and maybe about a quarter gram of oil. As for edibles, I don't really know because I make my own. I make my own butter and my own oils that I cook with. So I don't really know what the ratio is on that because I don't purchase them. That's interesting because it, uh, from what you've told us, we've talked to a number of people who have taken a lot more than you do on a daily basis. Yes, yes. And that's the thing is it can vary from person to person on what they need to get through. And it depends on what strain you have. Um, you know, the cannabis world has changed so much, even in just the five years, we didn't know about phenos five years ago. We didn't know when we knew about phenos, but we didn't know about terps. We didn't know about, you know, all these fancy things that people throw around and strains. And I don't know about you guys, but this side of six, seven, eight years ago, it was good weed or bad weed. It wasn't, oh, this is, you know, such and such strain. When I was purchasing, a lot of times I'd buy from my local supplier because it was more economical for me rather than the shops um, or back in the early days. We didn't have strains and those sorts of things. We're learning so much. And I think that we're going to find that 
certain strains obviously are we are finding certain strains are better for other things charlotte's web harley sue those sorts of things i think the further we scratch the surface i predict and i'll say this right now on radio i predict that at some time in our future we are going to find out that at the very least cbd is going to be a vitamin that we take every day like we take vitamin b12 I think that that's where we are going. I think that we are going to find that it is something that is just, and our great, great grandchildren are going to look back at us. Like we look back at our great, great, great grandparents who use laudanum to go to sleep or morphine for a slight headache remedy or cold medicine. You know, we look back on these people and go, oh my gosh, what the world were they thinking? Yeah, Shannon, considering, as we wrap this up, considering all the health issues that you've endured in your life, how would you describe your health today? My health today, you know, I'm going to say my health today is not tip top, but my quality of life is amazing. I will never be well. Um, for me, I'm, I'm looking at starting dialysis next week. Um, I hope that's not permanent with this condition. I probably will never be eligible for a kidney transplant. Uh, there's a lot of things that I will never be well, but my quality of life is amazing. And I, I'm happy. I'm at, I have peace of mind. I can get out of bed and not be in severe agony and and I can medicate all day long and still have clarity in my head and know what's going on not falling asleep in the middle of a conversation with a friend well, I have control you didn't fall asleep today yeah you did very no. well Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a pleasure to talk to you I wish you all the best in the future thank you thank you so much it was a pleasure thanks Shannon much appreciated I do appreciate everything you guys do as well. Thank you so much. Have you checked out our webpage and the apparel items that we have for sale, the Cannabis Health Radio apparel items? Go to our webpage, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and look up the shop items that we have for sale. We've got T-shirts, we've got hoodies, uh, hats, and even a Cannabis Health Radio mug. And you can purchase those by going to our website. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have more items for sale on Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back again with another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.